Let's all stand together and read. Our text for this morning is 2 Timothy 2, 22-26. Here we come to our final section of 2 Timothy chapter 2, and then we'll have the second half of the book to look forward to as Paul continues to teach Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's read these verses together in unison, 2 Timothy 2, 22-26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text this morning, we pray that you would grip us with the unique responsibility you have placed on your family, your church, to respond to those who oppose the truth. Father, I pray that you would show us our absolute weakness and frailty to respond in this way. And that you would show us the beauty of Christ who embodies these responses. And cause us to look to Him, to run to Him together today under the weight of this exhortation to find Him to be our strength, our righteousness, and the indwelling presence who lives a life that is glorifying to You through us, in us. Father, we we confess that we fall short of this glory and that we need We need Your your saving work. We need Your Son. We pray that we would submit ourselves to the authority of this text this morning and that as it works its way into our hearts by Your Spirit and into our lives, that it would make an impact on our community. Father, that we we would be those who are eager to speak the truth in love. And even when we are responded to by hostility, that you would fill our hearts with compassion and the eternal perspective behind the scenes of earth, that we would look to you, our God, who alone can grant repentance and who does so in a way that brings you glory, who alone can pull the one who is entangled in false doctrine out of the snare You alone, Father, can bring the one who is deceived to their senses. But use us, we ask. Use us and live your life through us, O Christ. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. One of the most important aspects of biblical ministry 
is learning to respond rightly to the situations that our Sovereign Father brings to us from day to day. Effective ministry doesn't always happen by your pursuing it, by your looking for an opportunity and advancing yourself into that for the cause of Christ. Sometimes God allows ministry to happen that way. But often, ministry happens by prayerfully responding in the Spirit to the opportunities that God brings to you. Various opportunities. And more specifically, some of the opportunities that God will certainly bring your way are those professing believers who are dabbling into new and alluring doctrine, professing believers who are entangled in false doctrine, captured by it already. So when you, when you have an, a, an opportunity to talk with someone like that, who thinks they know the truth, but clearly from Scripture they are entangled in error, how will you respond to those precious people? I'm sure most of us have had opportunities like that. How many times those interchanges become difficult, uncomfortable, awkward, even, even hostile, could we say, sometimes? Will you give in to that internal passion to theologically crush someone and win the argument? That's sometimes our propensity. We want to win the argument. We want to force that person into a different perspective. And in the process, we lose the person altogether. Do you know when to say no to a particular debate because it will be counterproductive to engage in it? That's a great question to consider. How do you know what conflicts to engage in and what conflicts to say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to get involved with that one. Are you able to respond to a hostile opponent of the gospel, an opponent of godliness even, with gentle teaching, with meek correction, with enduring forbearance? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker, but maybe even it's a child or a parent or a spouse. Can you respond with this gentleness, this meekness? Is that your objective? And still teach and correct. And I'll tell you this morning that the need for these kinds of wise and yet harmless approaches, these responses will become more and more frequent as our culture looks more and more like the culture of Paul and Timothy. And we're moving in that direction rapidly, as, as you know. And that culture will be described clearly for us in the next chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We need these texts. We need these texts to prepare us to make disciples of Jesus Christ even in a world, even in a world that is hostile to the truth and hostile toward righteousness. So let's take a look this morning in these verses at how the Apostle Paul exhorts Timothy to respond 
to the personal ministry challenges that often come to the good servant of Jesus Christ. That's the main idea. The title this morning here is The Good Servant of Christ, His Responses. And the main idea we could summarize in this way. By the strength and Spirit of Christ, let us pursue the godly responses, responses of the good servant of Christ. We need the strength of Christ, right? Chapter 2, verse 1. Be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need the Spirit of God. First, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. We have the Spirit of Christ in us. We have available to us. We are standing and we have access to the grace, the strength of the grace of Christ. And so what are these responses of the good servant of Christ? You can certainly follow along in your outline. Number one, the good servant of Christ's response to youthful passions. This is verse 22. The Apostle Paul says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In the verses before us today, the Apostle Paul is really expanding his exhortations about how to become a vessel for honor. Remember, we talked about that last week. What does it look like to be a vessel for honor? How does Jesus Christ, the good master, prepare these vessels for honor? So don't forget that that's still part of what we're talking about in these texts. But as we have said, the issue in this section is the responses of the good servant of Jesus Christ, even and particularly to opponents of the truth and of righteousness. And Paul begins right where he should. How the servant of Christ must respond to his own heart in the midst of these sort of conflicts. His own temptations, his own sinful desires in these difficult, potentially instigating ministry interactions. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So Paul calls Timothy and every good servant of Christ, first of all, to flee. Flee youthful passions. This word flee, as you would expect, means to escape danger. To fly to safety as quickly as possible. And of course, in this context, you know the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual danger as opposed to physical danger. So what is the spiritual danger from which the good servant of Christ is to flee? Well, right here Paul says, youthful passions. The word for passions here is probably the most common word in the New Testament that refers to strong desires, particularly strong sinful desires or cravings for what is forbidden. And in this case, these particular passions as Paul describes, are those that are unique or particularly common to those who are young. So what is Paul referring to specifically? What's a youthful passion? What comes to your mind? I think as we think about Timothy's life and his ministry and the context in which he lives, some of us might think, well, he's talking about sexual lust. And that probably would be a valid way to consider at least a portion of youthful lusts. 
various sensual, sinful, self-indulgent desires and wayward impulses would certainly fit this category. Those who are young, young servants of Christ, young elders are certainly called to guard themselves in their sexual desires, their sensual desires. But as we observe the context here, there are some other youthful passions which I think are more applicable to the present situation, such as the young person's desire for that which is new and alluring, including religious thought. Look at verse 23, for example. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they bring quarrels. Young people like new things, particularly like to entertain new thoughts about God, about Christianity. We're, we're, the easy, we're the easy sail on a lot of these things. They're entertaining. They appeal to us. Also, it could be the young person's desire for argument and winning the argument. Again, look at verses 23 and 24. He says, you know that this sort of foolish, ignorant Controversy breeds quarrels. And then verses 24 to 26 is largely taken up with responses to such situations. Must not be quarrelsome, kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and so on. It's so easy for a young person in religious theological controversy to handle opposition sinfully with pride, impatience, forcefulness, harshness, retaliation. With a younger person, it often becomes more important, as we've said, to win the argument over against winning the person to the truth. These temptations were strong within Timothy and are present in every servant of Christ, and not just young ones, especially in the midst of challenging ministry moments. But Paul says here, flee these. Flee these youthful passions. Giving way to these temptations will discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'll dishonor the name of Christ. And they will often discourage the people of God. So don't hang around with these passions. Like Lot, you can think of Lot. The, the angels came in and said, come on, leave, leave the city of Sodom. And he just kind of wanted to hang around. Paul says, flee youthful passions. More like Joseph, right? who when Potiphar's wife grabbed a hold of his cloak, he left it in her hands and ran. That's the idea. Sometimes we don't see how dangerous it is to, to exercise these passions in the body of Christ in the midst of religious discussion. I've got to see this through. I've got to force my thoughts in. I've, it doesn't matter. I'm harsh. I'm, I retaliate. No. Paul says, flee those youthful passions. But we know that no one can avoid temptation merely by fleeing. Right? It's not enough to say no to one thing. We have to what? Say yes to something else. So Paul, in this case, exhorts Timothy to pursue four particular virtues in place of being drawn in by these youthful passions. Again, keep the context in mind. This is particularly in the context of when you're discussing, when you're interacting in ministry with someone who is opposing the truth. 
Flee the youthful passions. When you've got strong personalities coming at you and you just, you just want to crush that person with your thoughts and your words, wait a minute. Paul says, instead, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What does pursue mean? Well, it means to run after it. To seek after zealously, eagerly, earnestly endeavor to acquire something, to press on, to reach a goal. In fact, interesting illustration of this, this is the word that is used of the Apostle Paul when he was pursuing the church in order to persecute the church. There's a a zealousness about this. Philippians 3, 12-14, Paul also uses the same concept when he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And what's to be pursued? Well, these virtues. Righteousness. What is righteousness? In our dealings with one another, to have right thoughts and attitudes and words and actions which will follow the will of God and please Him. And of course, we know righteousness is impossible apart from being in Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 1-11 through shows us that clearly. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. And the Spirit quickens and gives life to your mortal body. In Christ, righteousness is our declared standing. It's our legal position before God. But not only that... The Spirit causes righteousness to become our growing personal experience. That's what we're to look to. The work of the Spirit within. This virtue of righteousness guards the servant of Christ against the sins of sensual, sexual desire. Certainly, that would dishonor Christ and harm other brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's also faith. Faith is mentioned here. Faith can refer to the truth itself, as it often does in the the New Testament. The faith. It can also refer to a deep conviction about the truth. It can refer to integrity or fidelity or trustworthiness as in faithfulness. Or it can simply mean trust or dependence on Christ. And when we observe Paul's other lists of virtues, remember Paul has several lists of virtues throughout the New Testament. Pursue these things and he lists Two, three, four, five, six virtues. When when we find faith in these other lists, we may conclude that faith refers to trust when it's followed by love. And so here, faith means trust, dependence on Christ for all things. Like Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. But it's not me, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith, trust, dependence constantly drawing resources from the person of Jesus Christ, depending on Him to deliver His grace to me when I need it. And this virtue guards the servant of Christ against pride that races ahead and trusts self and our own thought and our own words and our own abilities and our own spiritual influence rather than Christ and the Spirit of Christ. So over against these youthful passions, Paul calls us to pursue righteousness and faith and then love. Love, could we define it like this? Holy spiritual affection for God and His image bearers, our fellow man, that results in a willingness to make personal 
sacrifices in the pursuit of another's greatest good and the glory of God. That's the heart of this kind of love. Personal sacrifice in order to pursue someone else's good and the glory of God. Love, as is the case of all these virtues, is impossible apart from the saving work of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We know this, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Only those who are born of God love. Why? Because God is love. We love only because what? He first loved us. It's impossible for a person to love like this without God first giving them new birth and living His life through them. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. This virtue powerfully guards the servant of Christ from sinning against God and others. But also love guards against the, the passions of impatience and unkindness and forcefulness and harshness and retaliation while seeking to minister Christ to others. Remember the qualities of love that are described in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is kind. It forbears. Doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Tell you, I hope as we work through this message that you feel a weight grow heavier and heavier on you, that you feel like, I can't, I can't bear to be like this. And then I'll try to show you Christ at the end of, of this message. Because this, you walk through this text, it's astounding what Christ calls us to be. Love. Peace. It's first of all friendship and unity with God. Through Jesus Christ. Alone. And that unity and friendship with God that Christ has purchased for us at the cross and through His righteous life translates into a tranquility or rest in my soul, right? My guilt is removed. My punishment is taken. My eternity is secure. I have peace with God, right? Which displays itself then by a spirit-empowered passion to live in harmony with others, especially with brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or Romans 12, 18, as much as possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably, live at peace with all people. And so those texts speak perfectly of the peace that is to be pursued by the good servants of Christ as he relates with others in the body of Christ. Even even when there is conflict over the truth. This virtue guards the servant of Christ against the passion to pick a fight and to win the argument in the process of pursuing the truth. And Paul gives one additional aspect of a godly response to youthful passions. He says, flee these, pursue these, and then along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So, you can see in your outline, letter C, team up. We need one another for this. With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, flee this with them. Pursue this with them. Who are those who call on the Lord from a pure heart? They're fellow believers. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who have heard the truth of Jesus Christ as Lord 
and called upon his name for salvation from sin and have submitted themselves to his lordship. Romans 10.13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. These are the ones who call on the Lord from a pure heart. These are brothers and sisters who have a pure heart because the Spirit's work of regeneration and renewal has taken place within them. They have a new heart. They love truth. They hate error. They love righteousness. They hate sin with you because of the Spirit. And it's continuing. It's continuing. They're being sanctified. They're being prepared as vessels for honor right along with you. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who just as passionate about fleeing sin and pursuing godliness and walking in unity as the good servant of Christ. And so the good servant of Christ is to live in prayerful unity with brothers and sisters like these so that youthful passions may be rejected and Christ-like virtues may be developed. We're to run from sin and run after holiness together. Do you forget that sometimes? It's easy when we have struggles with sin to isolate ourselves. That's our most initial response. It's what humans do. We isolate so very often. Instead, the Scripture calls us to confess our sins to one another, doesn't it? James 5, 14. Talk about our temptations to one another. Express our spiritual desires to one another. Encourage one another in Scripture and in Christ. And pray for one another in the Spirit. We're to pursue these and flee these things together. That's helpful. That's very helpful. We need that. Temptation isn't to be fled in isolation from your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not. It's not designed for that. We're to do this together. Godly virtue isn't to be pursued in isolation from your brothers and sisters in Christ. The active unity that we enjoy through the Holy Spirit as brothers and sisters in Christ is a powerful asset of grace given by the ascended and reigning Christ for our practical victory over sinning and our personal growth in holiness, unity, and all the blessings that it brings in the Spirit. This is what Paul means by with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So, let me ask you before we move to the second point this morning, are you fleeing youthful passions, just as Paul is described here in this context? Is that on your mind? What youthful passions are you fleeing? Are you pursuing these godly virtues? Which ones are particularly challenging for you? Which particular passions in the life of the body that could be destructive are difficult for you to turn from? And so are you fleeing these and pursuing these things with your family? Who? Who are you bringing near to yourself and praying with and asking to encourage you in this endeavor? By the strength and spirit of Christ, let's pursue the godly responses of the good servant of Christ. The first one, to flee youthful passions, to pursue these. Here's how we respond to youthful passions. Number two, this morning, verse 23, the good servant of Christ's response to controversies. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish 
ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. As we observe what Paul says about this second response, let's first discover what foolish, ignorant controversies are. At the outset, we have to understand something. That not every controversy is sinful. Not every controversy is harmful to the body of Christ. The most basic meaning of this word, controversies, is a seeking an inquiry, a questioning, even a debate. And this can happen in the church in a way that actually honors Christ and is healthy for people. Let me give you an example. Paul sought holy contention with Peter in Galatians 2, 11-14. Peter was being distracted by legalism. And you can read about the details of that some other time. But Paul stood up and contended with him to his face. But that was healthy for Peter and for the body of Christ. Because it brought that situation back to the true gospel. You see? That's a healthy contention. Or just what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Right? We, may, we may and we must contend for the faith like this. Jude 3 says it. But this is not what Paul is talking about here when he says foolish, ignorant controversies. These are something else entirely. Let me see if I can make clear what these are, these foolish, ignorant controversies. Think back to what Paul has already written about these controversies. Would you turn with me back to the first letter of Timothy and look at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. There's some words that come up multiple times in these pastoral epistles, and that's helpful for defining them, because then you can pick some key words out of the context and say, okay, here's what is associated with foolish, ignorant controversies, or just the word controversy. So 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote, what? Speculation. There's, There's our word. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so what we see here in relationship to controversies is that they're certainly associated with harmful doctrine, but not just that. Here's where we're coming to. These controversies, these foolish, ignorant controversies, are associated with, look at that word, myths. In other words, the content of this controversy is extra-biblical thought. The debate is about topics that you do not find clearly addressed in the Bible. This is a big deal in identifying what kinds of things to get involved with and what kinds of things to just shut down and leave alone. They're arguing about myths. You don't find this thought in the Bible. Or, look at also, it says it comes from endless genealogies. We might could say this, it It is based on, these controversies are based on extra-biblical authority. 
So the debate is grounded in human authority, made-up authority, human opinion, endless genealogies, connecting themselves with some high-profile person of the past. And it promotes speculation. Again, extra-biblical discussion, extra-biblical debate and argument. These don't help anyone. It does not, in fact, it says here in verse 4, it does not promote the stewardship from God. In other words, it doesn't build up the church and it doesn't advance the gospel. All that it does is create more argument, creates fights, creates quarrels. All right, look at another text, 2 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Did I say 2 Timothy? It's 1 Timothy, if I said 2. There's no 2 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, 4 and 5. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for, ah, here's our word again, controversy, and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. All right, let's draw some words out of there and help us to define this controversy. One thing we can see is that it springs from a sick craving. What is the craving? Just the sick desire to, to fight. We like to fight. We like to argue. It's fun. It's it exercise power over other people. Make people upset. I like that feeling. That's, that's what's going on here. The sick craving for argument and debate. It's associated with word wars. We've, we've remembered that word, right? Word wars. We just talked about that recently. It's the noun here. It's the verb in 2 Timothy 2.14, which means to reassign or give new meaning and significance to fundamental doctrines and the words that the New Testament uses to describe those doctrines. To make worthless what is significant and to make significant what is worthless. Word wars, shifting meaning about words. And these controversies produce all kinds of hostility among the people. We can see that in the text. And they're promoted and entertained by people who are depraved in mind, deprived of truth, and desperate for sensual satisfaction. All right, now come back to our text again. And we can see this description of controversies here. They're foolish and they're ignorant. Foolish, meaning they're godless. They're stupid, actually. This is the word that we get moron from. This is that word. They're moronic. And they're ignorant. They're uninformed. They're uninstructed. They're untrained. They're uneducated. They're undisciplined. All right, what is that? Let's bring all that together. Let me begin by quoting or paraphrasing some words from John Stott about this word. He said, What is forbidden are controversies which in their effect breed quarrels. They are stupid and futile because they are speculative. They are senseless, uninstructed, undisciplined because they go beyond Scripture. They do not submit to the intellectual discipline which Scripture should impose on us. 
They breed quarrels because they forsake revelation for speculation. There is no agreed authority, no impartial court of appeal, and there is a lapse into subjectivity and opinion versus opinion. Unbiblical speculation and uncharitable polemics are a danger to the cause of Christ. All right, I'm going to make this a little more clear in just a moment. But initially, let's say this first. What does Paul say should be our response to such controversies? Have nothing to do with them. What does that mean? It means, and actually, have nothing to do with is all one word. It means to refuse, to decline, to shun, to avoid, to excuse yourself. The only response to these kinds of debates should be, I'm not going to argue with you about that, and you shouldn't argue about it either, and leave. That's, that's what Paul is saying to do here. I'll stay and argue about many other things. I'll contend for the truth over scriptures, but not this issue. Excuse me, I'm out of here. Right? That's, that's what Paul is saying here. So then how do we know? How do we know the difference when to refuse and when to engage in a particular conflict? Here's five questions I was thinking about as looking at this text I think will be helpful to you, to me, to all of us. Questions to ask before engaging in a conflict. What authority are we appealing to in this conflict? If the authority in the conflict is the authority of Christ and the Scriptures, you can say yes to that debate. Let's talk about Scripture. If the authority is just human opinion, there's, there's no authority to anchor into. Who's, who's going to win that one? Relativism, right? It's going to go nowhere. It has to be the authority of Christ and His Word that anchors any content contention. Second question, what kind of issues are we debating? Primary New Testament doctrines are matters of opinion. Those are the things we can watch for. But what kind of issues? Primary doctrines? Yes. We can discuss primary doctrines, can't we? That's important. That's, that's what Peter did, or that's what Paul did with Peter. Wait a minute. Are, are we talking about faith alone here? Or are we talking about adding some... Ritual to Christ. If we're talking about matters of opinion or speculative matters that can't be resolved because there's no authoritative revelation by which to soundly answer them, even issues of conscience that the Bible does address may be carefully and gently handled but not contended over. See, we can't contend for the faith over everything, right? Only over the faith and with the Scriptures. Third, what kind of attitude is being promoted? Is it zealous love for others? Well, then yes, we can participate in that kind of contention. Or is it bitter competition and retaliation? No, not that. That's not, that's not why we contend. We don't contend to be bitter and retaliate, but because of zealous love for the good of others and the glory of God. And what's the motive? What's the motive? Is it for the glory of God? 
Is it the honor of Christ? Is it the purity of the gospel? Or is it self-promotion in some way? Right? You can say yes or no based on these criteria. What tools and resources are being used? Is the sword of the Spirit the tool that's, that's used in this contention? Or is it ignorant words and opinions of men? You can tell when to participate in a healthy contention for the faith and when to back out, I think, based on this text, which elucidates these questions. So if your answer is yes, and you say yes, it is the authority of Christ, it is primary doctrine, it is zealous love, it is the glory of God and the honor of Christ and the good of the people, and we're using the Word of God, well then, it's important to contend for the faith. But if all we have is human opinion, speculative matters, bitter contention, self-promotion, ignorant words, human opinions, you're not going to get anywhere. It's only going to produce more and more and more and more fighting and division. That's Paul's point here. And Paul reinforces why excusing ourselves is so important here. So not only excuse yourself, but remind yourself of something. And it's what we're talking about. They breed quarrels. You know this. You know that they breed quarrels. They breed quarrels like earthquakes breed tsunamis. doesn't get any better. They spawn fights in the body of Christ. They give birth to division in the church. Doing this wrong, entering into the wrong kind of controversy is harmful to the body of Christ. These kinds of controversies work in direct opposition to what Christ has called us to in His church. Christ has called us to truth. These controversies spread error like gangrene. Remember our last text? Christ has called us to unity. These controversies develop canyon-sized divisions and destruction. Christ has called us to unity by devotion to the truth. These controversies undermine everything that unity by devotion to the truth is built upon. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is the text, right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And we pursue that oneness in the truth and along with it, attitudes that are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, I would encourage you all this morning, excuse yourself from these kinds of controversies and remind yourself and others of their dangerous impact on the body of Christ. Would you partner together to guard this body of Christ from these kinds of controversies? By the Spirit of God, He can enable us to do that. Are these your personal commitments to Christ and His body today to excuse yourself and remind yourself as Paul has called us? Finally this morning, the good servant of Christ's response to snared opponents, snared opponents, verse 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 
Now, I want you to notice where I've gotten this, these titles. The, the good servant of Christ's response to snared opponents. Did you catch those words in the, in the, in the verses? We do have opponents. Opponents to the truth. Opponents to godliness. And what it says, how it describes these, is that they are captured. They're snared. We'll talk about this. We need to see things this way, and it will work in our hearts to change our responses. As the good servant of Christ seeks to minister the truth and the love of Christ to the body of Christ, he will inevitably come across those who oppose him because they refuse to submit themselves to the Word of God, to the truth of God, to the Lordship of Christ. So what then? What do you do? How do you respond? Well, the first response that Paul calls us to in this, in this series of responses, shall we say, to snared opponents is not quarrelsome. This is extremely difficult, but not quarrelsome, he says. That means when you're trying to convince someone of truth or godliness and call them to repentance, and you're zealously involved in this loving pursuit, and they become more and more obstinate and offensive, he says, don't fight. Don't fight. This word comes with a picture of someone with armor. Right? They're doing hand-to-hand combat. That's the idea. Set aside sinfully hurtful words. Those are your weapons. Those are our, those are our first go-to weapons, aren't they? Sinfully hurtful words. Put them aside. Set aside Lay off the stinging attitudes and tones of voice. Lay it off. Be done with threatening gestures. And never use physical force. That's that's part of this quarrelsomeness. God forbid that we would ever use physical force in the cause of truth. Lay down verbal, psychological, emotional weapons that are meant to personally attack and hurt the one who opposes you so that you can somehow win the war that way. We must refuse, think of it this way, we must refuse to employ the works of the flesh in the cause that is advanced only by the fruit of the Spirit. Can we take that to heart? That's Christ's call to us here. That's what what Paul's exhorting. And he says to be kind to everyone. Kind. These are amazing words to consider. The heart of this word, in addition to kindness, is to be mild, gentle, sensitive, gracious, approachable, tender toward people. And this doesn't make sense to us offhand, right? This, like, how can, you, how can you contend for the faith with certain ones who oppose you? And be tender, kind. It's possible by the Spirit of God. What comes to my mind is the response of a wise, seasoned, and loving grandparent to the many struggles and foolishnesses of their beloved grandchildren. Truth and discipline will be spoken decisively, clearly, thoughtfully, and repeatedly, but the communication will be filled with understanding and compassion. And patience 
and humility and sensitivity and grace. Can you hear that? Can you, can you remember, feel that with me? That's, that's the perspective here. And to whom are we speaking this way? Paul says to everyone, kind to everyone. Who's in that category? Remember, you always have to define every, uh, universal words like that according to their context. According to Paul's context, it would seem that he would mean, first of all, everyone in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. But also, I would say, everyone who is in the category of the deceived masses, those who are being led astray by false teachers. And part of the reason I think this is because this would follow the example of Jesus very well. You see, Jesus was not kind in this way to the false teachers. Do you remember? Matthew, chapter 23. Jesus wasn't kind. He certainly showed them love by speaking to those false teachers the truth. But his words were not tender and sensitive. These words would not describe Jesus' words. His words were scathing and forceful. Anyone who reads Matthew 23, you're like, wow, Jesus' words are sharp. However, Jesus was extremely kind to those who believed in him, even when they were slow of heart to believe all the scriptures had spoken. Remember? And he was kind to those who were being harassed by the false teachers and were being led astray as sheep without a shepherd. To these, Jesus was kind as he spoke the truth. His heart broke for them. He was moved with compassion. And Paul exhorts us as well to be kind rather than quarreling in the cause of Christ and his truth. But also, an essential is that we be able to teach. Able to teach. That means to capable of instructing others in the, in the Bible concerning what truth and right is. To be skillful in explaining the meaning that the Holy Spirit intended for His words as they reveal God and man and sin, salvation, Christ. To explain truth against error. We already know that this role is primarily the responsibility of elders in the body of Christ. The context bears that out. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. It's a quality that must be about the elder. And certainly the title, servant of Christ, or the Lord's servant, initially and primarily speaks to church leadership. But as we've said so many times before, there's a sense in which all of us, as genuine believers and servants of Christ, are must strive to take up these exhortations as our own, in our own spheres of influence, our families, our workplaces, and so on. So this is a response that every servant of Christ should strive for in the effort to minister to one another. And not every believer will be able to to teach to the extent of an elder, but every believer can teach in some capacity, right? That's what the Great Commission is all about. And we can teach by the grace of Christ with truth and simplicity and clarity and skill. It is essential, in fact, to teach biblical truth when you're seeking to call someone to turn from error or repent of sin. You see, your your words alone cannot convince anyone. 
They need to hear the Word of God. And that's what you must give them. Now, I believe that there's some confusion about speaking the truth in love or more fitting to our context, speaking the truth in kindness, as Paul writes. You see, we can't just be kind to those who oppose the truth and righteousness while teaching them nothing and expect them to be one to Christ simply by our kindness. That's not what the apostle says. Neither should we expect those who oppose to be won over for Christ by speaking the truth to them in pride and sinful anger and human forcefulness and impatience and retaliation and so on. It seems that so many of us either fall on one side or the other. Like, well, I'm just, I'm just going to be kind and, you know, not say much and hope the Lord works. And, and, and sometimes He does, but that's not what Paul is calling us to. And sometimes we're just like, let me at Him. You know, let me, let, me, let me say, I got this. And we just barge right on in. Paul calls Timothy, and by extension us, to deal with those who oppose, to deal with them in kindness. And with that attitude, teach them the truth. Fourthly here, we see Paul calling us to patient endurance of evil. This is a magnificent phrase, just astounding to think through. Patiently enduring evil. This aspect of our response answers the question, what should I do if they're unkind to me? What if they're harsh, mean, hostile, spiteful to me while I'm seeking to teach them with kindness? Do I just take it? I'm confident that Timothy asked these questions, struggled with the same questions, and experienced the situations personally, and Paul would answer it just with these words. Patiently endure evil. Patiently endure evil. This is, again, actually one word. It means forbearing. Enduring of ills and wrongs. I tell you, this is one of the most difficult, yet most winsome responses to evil in the cause of truth. This defines Christianity uniquely. To respond to evil and endure it. When they verbally assault, we don't verbally assault in return. When, when they cause suffering, we don't even threaten in return. When they are evil toward us, we don't retaliate. The fight is not about us. It's about Christ and His truth. So instead, we absorb it. It's a good way to put it. We absorb the hostility, absorb the evil, take it to God in prayer for the sake of Christ and the truth. And we keep speaking the truth and teaching the truth with kindness. In fact, Paul says, letter E, correcting with gentleness. I mean, is the tension building in you a little bit here? This is, this is incredible. You can sense this tension building even between a servant of Christ and the opponent of Christ. There's an issue of doctrine or practice that must be addressed. The servant of Christ approaches the, the opposer and speaks to him with kindness. The servant of Christ begins to teach them and clearly explain to them what Christ has said in his word. The opponent feels the weight of the truth upon his sin and error and is convicted and exposed. So the opponent attacks in some way, verbally, emotionally, personally. But what? The servant of Christ does not retaliate. Instead, he endures the hostility. He absorbs it. 
And he continues to teach the truth of Christ. In fact, notice, he doesn't back off with his truth speaking, but actually goes one step farther with his opponents. And he does what? He corrects them. Wow. He actually corrects their arguments <laughs> with more truth. He corrects their false beliefs and behaviors. And he does it all with gentleness. Isn't that something to think about? How this passage unfolds. This word translated gentleness here is specifically meekness. Like a mighty horse that has been made useful by bringing it under control. So we can't make any mistake here with this word. This does not mean cowardice or impotence. Just the opposite. Meekness is having the power to retaliate and harm someone in return, but then controlling that power and holding it back with a spiritual strength that recognizes that the works of the flesh have no place in the cause of Christ, but only the fruit of the Spirit. See, we have to understand here something that Kindness and gentleness are not the opposite of speaking the truth. Do you believe that? Those aren't opposites. They work together in perfect unity to further the cause of Christ. Meekness and humility are not the opposite of correcting an opponent. They work together in perfect unity to further the cause of Christ. Man, if you've experienced these kinds of things, I know you're, you're right along with this text. You've lived it. You've struggled with it. Paul is calling us to, to grow beyond our worldly thinking, our natural human tendencies and impulses in contending for the truth and to fight the good fight of the faith by teaching and correction and gentleness and meekness and forbearance. Now, again, I come back to this question. Are you feeling the weight of Paul's exhortations yet? <laughs> I am. This is astounding to think about. Bearing down on our human frailty especially as you remember different situations in your past that didn't turn out like Paul's describing here. Are you asking yourself, how is this possible? I hope you are, because then you're beginning to see with some clarity the greatness of this calling and the weakness of your own flesh to actually live this out at the workplace, at home, in the body of Christ even. So I'll come back to that tension in a moment, but let's get to this final part, and then we'll conclude. Lastly here, number, letter F, remembering. We respond remembering the reasons for our responses. Why is it important that we respond this way? Verses 22 all the way through the beginning of 25. We've got this section so vital to our understanding. Because these responses, these responses are what the God of the universe, our sovereign Savior, has chosen to use in order to release people from Satan's grip and bring them into a full knowledge of the truth. Did you hear that? These are what God has chosen to use. These attitudes and qualities and responses. These bring him glory. He, Paul masterfully, in this, this last little sentence here, Paul masterfully describes these two beings behind the scenes of earth 
who deal with the souls of men. Who are the two beings? God and the devil. Right? Here's God. There's the devil. Of course, God is infinitely more powerful than the devil, but both truly deal with the eternal souls of men. And Paul indicates that the devil, the slanderer, that's what the word devil means, the opposer, the accuser, he snares. He snares men and women with what? His lies. Just like a fowler. That's what this word is used with. A fowler snaring a helpless bird in his net. And Paul also indicates here that the devil captures men and women. This word speaks of being captured alive. He captures these men and women alive. Why? In order to use them to accomplish his diabolical purposes in the world. And implied here in this phrase, come to their senses. God enables these to come to their senses. That phrase implies that the devil holds people under an intoxicating, tranquilizing sort of sway. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one in order to manipulate them to do his will. Now that is a sobering picture, is it not? Do you view people like that? Do you view your opponents to the truth like this? Snared. Drugged, captive, used by Satan. This is a picture that Paul paints for us of those who oppose us, to whom we are to respond as he is described. These are our snared opponents. How we, now we can see the real enemy, right? That's part of his point here. We can see the real enemy. The real enemy is not the person in front of us. The real enemy is not the person with whom we speak, but the devil who holds them captive in error and sin. Yes, it is their will as well. But that's the way Paul paints this picture. Here is the real enemy that we're dealing with. And that changes our perspective, doesn't it? It begins to work on our hearts a little bit. That starts to change our spiritual affections and moves us to desire compassion over retaliation in our responses to them. But there's more. Because we need to see not only our enemy, but our powerful saving king. Right? God. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. What a magnificent phrase, rich with saving theology. Oh my. God may perhaps grant them. God, according to his will in his time, grants people repentance and that repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth so that they can come to their senses. The devil is no match for God in any realm of conflict, certainly not in the battle for the soul. God can set any captive free by granting them the good gift of repentance at any moment he chooses. Repentance from error to walk in truth. Repentant from sin to walk in righteousness. And that leads them to what Paul describes here as a full knowledge. This isn't just the regular word for knowledge. This is the full knowledge of the truth. The living knowledge of the truth. The accurate knowledge and understanding of the gospel. 
of the apostolic doctrines of the New Testament so that they're awakened and revived spiritually and begin to walk in truth and holiness. See, God, if He wills, right? May, perhaps. He can do it. There's, it's not a matter of, of can. It's a matter of if He wills. He can shatter the devil's snare. He can neutralize the devil's drug. He can break the devil's captivity over anyone He chooses. Can you see the sovereignty of God in the whole process of salvation here? Paul wants us to remember that. Not just who the real enemy is behind our opponent, but the whole process of God's sovereignty at work and the person standing in front of us. You see, what lofty perspectives Paul brings in at the end of this chapter. We have to see it. Can you see the sovereign God at work bringing repentance from sin, waking someone up to a full knowledge of the truth? This text makes it undeniable clear that God alone grants these things, freedom from sin and error. But now let's make that connection. Make that connection. What does God then use as a tool in His hands to grant repentance and a full knowledge of the truth? What does He use? What does He choose to use to give that kind of work? He uses His vessels for honor, His good servants who respond to these captive drugged, snared opponents and all of their evil aggressions and hostilities with gentle teaching, meek correction, enduring forbearance. That's what God uses. You want to be what God will use because He is the only one who can grant repentance. Why? It's almost, in light of this text, it seems like insanity to try to take this thing into our own hands, right? Right? Force it through with human aggression and and, and sinful attitudes? No, God, you're the one who grants repentance. I want to be a tool in your hands. That's why it's pointless to respond to opponents in any other way. We can't, by human forcefulness and, and by returning evil for evil, make them repent and lead them to a knowledge of the truth. Remember James 1, verse 20? The anger of man, what? Does not work the righteousness of God. Only God grants this repentance and it's what brings him greatest glory in this way through gentle, meek, truth-speaking servants. In closing this morning, how can we have these responses? First, these responses are Christ. Are they not? This is Jesus before us. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out loud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he'll not break. A faintly burning wick he'll not quench. Yet he will faithfully bring forth justice. Isn't that a magnificent picture of Christ? The ultimate servant of the Lord. Or how about this text? Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. A sheep that before its shears is silent. 
so he opened not his mouth. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm a teacher, but I'm a gentle and lowly teacher. Gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. 1 Peter 2, commenting Isaiah 53, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Talk about absorbing hostility. Right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice what happened there at the end of chapter 2. Christ's response is like that, drew you back to the shepherd. You see that? So Christ is this. And so he's certainly our example in this, our perfect example, but he's so much more than that. He's our righteousness, for we have often failed with these things. When you fail... Confess your sin to your Father. Receive His cleansing work. And you know that you are dressed in righteousness. He is your advocate. He is your propitiator. Him who committed no sin when He was mistreated, His righteousness is your covering. But then, you live in Christ. And Christ lives in you. Galatians 2.6 As you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, Walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith and abounding with thanksgiving. You have all the resources you need in Christ because He lived this life before you. You have all the resources in Him to draw upon His grace. Trust Him to do that in you. He will. He will. Think of Him next time. You have to interchange with someone about the truth. You have been crucified with Christ, right? Christ lives in you. Live by faith. Let let him, by faith, receive his life through you. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 1, his strength is yours. My friend, if you're not in Christ this morning, but still in your sin, listen again to those words. Jesus invites you, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Jesus was talking to people who thought they could earn their standing before God by being good enough. Jesus said, lift that burden off of you and come to me. I have pulled that burden. I am good enough. And I'll give my righteousness to you. Receive Christ's righteousness. Reject your own. Reject your sin. Receive the glory of being a child of God. Don't kick against Christ's gentle call. Receive it. Come to Him. You need Christ. You need someone to provide righteousness to you. You need someone to remove your guilt and take your punishment. You need someone to grant you eternal life. You can't do any of these things for yourself. Christ is all you need. And you know what? If you're struggling to come, if you're struggling to process that because you still love your sin, because you're, you're, you're proud and you don't want others to know, or, or you've got a family behind you that is still devoted to false teaching, you know what? Ask God to grant you repentance. That would be my encouragement to you. Ask God to grant to you repentance 
that leads to a full knowledge of the truth so that you can come to Christ with a full and willing heart. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we, we face this text with desire but a knowledge of our own frailty and we confess that to you. Thank you for the cleansing work of Christ and our, and our declared righteous position before you through Christ. We ask that your spirit would quicken us, live through us, Lord Jesus. The next interchange we have for the sake of the truth, live through us. We trust you. Help us to trust you then, at that moment, that you would live your gentle teaching through us and meek correction. Father, for the sake of your name, your glory in the earth, we pray. Amen.